Welcome to TalkCast and to episode 103, the second of my Ask Me Anything episodes. The last one was a lot of fun and there were so many questions that I couldn't get to them in the one episode. Last episode were all the questions I received, almost all the questions I received, from my Patreons. I think there might be a few more to tidy up today. Today will be mainly questions from Twitter and a few other sources as well. These Ask Me Anything episodes are good for me because they're unscripted, unlike with my other episodes that go into detail about books I've read and ideas that I'm investigating, I have to do a bit of research and write a little bit of a script and at least write notes and of course do a lot of reading. With these, all I'm doing is taking the questions and then responding to them in an unscripted way, so hopefully it comes off a little bit more natural anyway. First, as Sam Harris likes to say in some of his podcasts, a little bit of housekeeping. This is going to be the first of the episodes that I'm going to release as an audio-only priority. So it's going to come out on all of the podcast platforms first, and then it will come out on YouTube. And so that might be what I'm doing going forward. There will be the odd video episode here and there, which will be much shorter than what I've tended to do. Most of my regular episodes, however, are going to move to audio only. That doesn't mean they're not going to be published on YouTube. They will be. It's just that they won't be very video intensive. They'll just have the minimal visuals there such that I can upload them as a video. And anyone who listens as audio only on YouTube will still be able to do that. Now, there are a lot of questions today, so I'm not going to go through any more of a lengthy introduction and instead just dive straight in to the questions so that I can hopefully get through what is left of them, so that I can hopefully get through all of the ones that have been submitted to me. First one from Twitter, from Jitten. Congratulations on getting to 100, he says. I look forward to the next 100. By the way, am I too late for an AMA? How do people learn false things? Through conjecture and criticism also, but then their criticism can't be any good. For example, how do homeopaths learn their craft? Okay, so how do people learn false things? Well, remember that according to a Popperian framework, everything that we know is false anyway. It's going to turn out false in the final analysis. What we have are misconceptions, misconceptions that are more or less close to the truth, but never the actual truth. So what we're learning are false things. So you might very well ask, how do we learn Newton's law of gravity? Well, via this method of conjecture and criticism. So the question can't be, how do people learn false things? As if that is something different to learning true things because all of our knowledge contains misconceptions and so therefore in the final analysis as i say it's going to turn out false so we're learning those lessons those theories those explanations via this method of as you say conjecture and criticism and that's producing false things so if the question is how do people learn pseudoscience how do so many people learn these false things that the rest of us understand what the explanations are for why they're false. Okay, for, for much of our knowledge, what we regard as our best explanations, we don't yet know why those things are false. One day we will, and we will improve on the present best state of our knowledge, but at the moment we don't have good explanations as to how those theories, for example, the theory of quantum, the quantum theory, the general theory of relativity, the theory of plate tectonics, the theory of genetics, and so on and so forth, all of these great scientific theories, the theories about how World War II started and finished, and so on and so forth, pick your good explanation. One day we're going to find out that these theories contain misconceptions. Now, when it comes to homeopaths, or astrologers, or 
pick whatever one of these pseudosciences that you like. How is it that they learn those things? Well, in exactly the same way, as you kind of hint at. And it's not that their criticism can't be any good. It's just that they haven't yet learned why these things are false, presumably. And so it's just a bit of knowledge that they lack. In the case of homeopaths, as I understand it, what you do is you dilute the solution more and more and more. And the more you dilute the solution, the stronger the nostrum, the treatment, the medicine that you apparently have, the homeopathic remedy, the stronger the remedy becomes, the more and more it's diluted, which of course is in stark contrast to what we know of chemistry. Chemistry, it works precisely the other way. The more that you dilute something, the weaker and weaker the concentration is, or the, the more dilute the concentration is, I should say, and therefore the less of the active ingredient is in that thing. Homeopathy says that the water has some sort of memory. This violates what we know of physics and chemistry. You know, how is this memory stored within the water? Why does the water only remember the good things that were in it and not, for example, all the sewage that has ever been in it? These things are questions unanswered and a homeopath who is sufficient or, become, or comes to learn a sufficient amount of chemistry would, I suppose, have to partition their mind logically in some way in order to deal with the cognitive dissonance that would come with simultaneously thinking that homeopathy, where you dilute something more and more it becomes stronger, and chemistry, where if you dilute something more and more it becomes weaker, um, you would have to somehow deal with that contradiction. But whatever the case is, yes, homeopaths have to learn their craft in precisely the same way as a chemist would learn their craft. They just wouldn't learn science alongside. And it's not that I suppose their criticism can't be any good, it's that they don't know the criticisms. Or if they've been presented with the criticisms, they don't understand it. Or if they're presented with the criticisms, they might have a financial interest in simply ignoring the criticisms that they are receiving. Or perhaps they somehow have some emotional bias. There could be all of these reasons why they might not understand or refuse to believe the criticism when the criticism is valid. But there is only one way to learn, whether learning the best explanations we have or the misconceptions we have, or the complete and utter myths that we have once understood. Okay, Jitten has a second question, and he asks, Persuasion still fails when trying to persuade creationists, flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, etc. When you do have good explanations, how does it fail here? So this is a related question, really, on the reasons why persuasion might fail. And my understanding is, or my thoughts on this, would be that persuasion often fails in these situations when the person trying to do the persuading has a bad way of trying to explain things to these people. Not always, but I like to put the onus back on the person doing the explaining. One might wonder why are you trying to convince this person in the first place? When we say there exists a good explanation, we kind of mean that in the objective sense. It's out there in abstract space. Someone at some point has found this good explanation. It exists whether or not anyone believes it anymore or not. If everyone was wiped out by an asteroid tomorrow, but our books were left behind, by definition, there would be no one left to understand, to appreciate, for example, that we live on a, well, <laughs> that we once lived on a spherical Earth. But that knowledge would be there in books. And if an alien race came along, they would be able to pick up those books and find out what we knew. Why will persuasion fail to convince a creationist that they're wrong? 
You might also consider, if you're ever explaining something, something to a child, why your explanation fails then. Is it the fault of the child? I would say no. I would say that although you might possess a good explanation, having the other person, the child in this case, try to understand that good explanation, it's all on you. It's all on you getting that across, especially if the child is particularly interested in that thing. And if you can't get it across to someone, it suggests a couple of things. It might suggest you don't actually understand that good explanation after all. You think you do, but when you try to put it into words, you can't, which is a red flag about the extent to which you really do understand it. If you really do understand it, you should be able to put it into more and more simple terms such that the person can at least meet you halfway in coming to appreciate what you think you appreciate. That's one thing. Another thing is some people are just bad at communication. Some people are just bad at um, trying to persuade people. They're mean about it. They lack compassion. They lack empathy. They lack an ability to try and see things from the point of view of someone who doesn't yet understand what they understand. We've all had better and worse teachers, and the worst teachers are the ones that, although they might very well have the knowledge, the way in which they go about trying to explain what they know is either boring or it's just in a manner which is unkind. Uh, there can be any number of reasons why you aren't persuaded by the teacher, even though at some level they must have a good explanation operating on their mind or in their mind. Now, in the case of people who are, in our culture, committed creationists, flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, this kind of thing, people who embrace pseudoscience, there's a number of reasons for that. I would blame, firstly, possibly, the school system in turning people off science, in not presenting science in the way in which it should be presented as a process, but rather turning it into a body of facts which you can't question. And then people come out of school and they begin questioning things and they think that they've been indoctrinated into these ways of thinking about science, this body of facts, and rightly they're sceptical about everything they've been taught at school because they begin to understand that at least some of what they were taught was wrong. And once you begin to be critical about some of what you think, you might very well be critical about everything that you have been taught. Because the way in which people who aren't creationists, aren't flat earthers, aren't anti-vaxxers, try and persuade these people into coming around to their point of view is in the most unkind, ungenerous, pandering, patronizing, and sometimes simply insulting way. You're not going to convince a creationist, a young earth creationist, that they're wrong by yelling at them about how stupid they are, by telling them that they're ignorant. And of course, so many people these days embrace the theories and explanations of science for precisely the same reasons that creationists, flat earthers and anti-vaxxers embrace the theories that they hold as true. In other words, not because they've necessarily reached it by a truly critical process, but rather because they've memorized a body of facts. Now, on the side of the people who memorize this body of facts in science, well, at least they're memorizing our best set of facts derived from our best explanations. But it doesn't mean they really understand what they're saying. You know, this seems to happen very commonly when it comes to questions about climate change. How many people truly understand the mechanism by which climate change happens? They might understand, for example, there are these things called greenhouse gases and the greenhouse gases trap heat in the atmosphere. But do they understand how, at the level of the molecule, what's precisely going on with carbon dioxide and 
infrared radiation? Do they really get what's going on? Do they understand the explanation? Or are they outsourcing most of that explanation to the experts? And if they're doing that, why are they so vociferous in their emotional connection to this particular theory and willing to insult their neighbours and other community members who disagree with them because they also don't actually understand the theory. So we've got two people, neither of whom understand the theory. On the one hand, someone who says climate change is real, but they don't really understand the theory. And on the other hand, a a person who says climate change is not real, it's not really going on, it's not anthropocentric or whatever. They also don't understand climate change. But these two people are yelling insults at one another all about a theory they don't understand because they're both dogmatically committed to a particular doctrine that comports with their worldview, with their politics and so on on and so forth. So this all comes down to why persuasion fails, because people aren't, I think, in many, many cases, genuinely trying to persuade one another about the truth or falsity of these particular positions. Everyone has to go in with an open mind and a critical mind in order to really learn. And I would say not to try and get caught up in these discussions if you're not really interested and the other party's not really interested in making progress on this front. There will always be people that don't yet understand the best explanation. And that's fine. You know, not everyone has to understand everything. And some people can have misconceptions. There will always be people who have misconceptions. I would say that so long as the geophysicist you're talking to isn't a flat earther, so long as the GP that you're going to with respect to getting a vaccine isn't an anti-vaxxer, you're fine. It doesn't really matter. And this will be controversial, but it shouldn't even matter if these people occupy political positions either. If a creationist has a political position, if a flat earther happens to be the president of the United States, if someone in the Senate happens to be an anti-vaxxer. This shouldn't really matter. And the reason I think it shouldn't matter, although it probably does, it shouldn't matter because none of those positions should be something that the government has any interest in, really. In the case of vaccines produced recently, well, private industry came up with them anyway pretty quickly. In the case of creationism or people being committed to a particular kind of religious mythology, every again, everyone has misconceptions. No one is immune from wandering around with misconceptions. And many people want to pick on particular kinds of misconceptions as being especially dangerous. But if it's not directing the day-to-day decision-making, which is in the purview of the particular government, then I'm not particularly concerned if the president or the prime minister happens to be a young earth creationist. I might very well be more concerned that presidents and prime ministers do things like print more and more money under the misconception that this has no effect on the average person and the amount of money they have in their bank account, for example. So misconceptions are everywhere and persuasion should be expected to often fail because sometimes people are not interested either in persuading, they're just yelling at insults at someone else, or being persuaded. Again, they're just dogmatically committed to a particular position without really understanding it. Next, questions from Ashik. Less questions and more a list of things to do. (laughs) Number one, a refutation of physicalism. Okay, well, let's deal with that one first. Well, the refutation of physicalism is simply that there really do exist 
abstract things in reality and those can have causal effects in the world. I've used lots and lots of examples. There are examples in the beginning of infinity of this before. Um, let's come up with one now. Let's say you're playing a computer game and let's say this particular computer game has various levels and in order to proceed from one level to the next, when you win a particular level, the screen goes green at the end of that particular level to tell you that you have won that particular level. Otherwise, it goes red and you have to start all over again. Imagine the screen turns green. Why does the screen turn green? Physicalism would say that you're supposed to look at the individual pixels and trace what's going on at the level of the individual pixel. Okay, for example, there's electrical energy going through the pixel and that's causing some sort of photoluminescence where the photons are coming out and they happen to be a green color. And you trace that back, that sequence, all the way back through the circuitry of the computer. Uh, and from the circuitry of the computer, you end up uh, going out to the electricity supply and from the electricity supply you go all the way back to the to the power station where perhaps coal is being burnt and you're saying that this is the reason why okay this long sequence of cause and effect events is the reason why ultimately the pixels on the screen turn green and that's why the screen turns green because all the pixels have and all the pixels have because this is what the electrical circuits have told them what to do well that's if that was the only possible explanation and someone insists that that's the only explanation and that the only thing therefore that exists are the physical events then you would be a physicalist i don't know who's really committed to that particular style of physicalism whether there's other kinds of physicalism i don't know but the refutation of that kind of physicalism is to simply say well the screen's gone green because that's the rule of the game if you win the level then the screen turns green and talking about games to begin with, a computer game is not a physical thing. It's an abstract thing. It's it's something that can be printed onto a CD-ROM, supposedly, possibly, or a DVD, or downloaded off a server somewhere, and then it's run through a computer. And following the rules of the game, the rules are abstractions, and performing certain actions as a person playing the game, these things, thinking through what you need to do, the thinking part, again, is more abstract stuff going on. The best explanation for why the screen turns green is not in terms of the movement of electrons through circuits. The reason why the screen turns green should be at the level of I won the game and that's what happens. And so much of the explanations that exist out there in the human world come down to more than just the physical events at the level of subatomic particles and physical forces. Question two is similar along these lines, how laws of physics and mind are abstractions. So they're different, there's certainly different kinds of abstractions. And this was in my interview with David, we talked, in fact, about both of these. And, um, well, in terms of mind, let's deal with mind first. Uh, it's an interesting kind of abstraction, we both admitted there, that presumably there is an algorithm for something like a human mind. We don't know what the algorithm is. Presumably, you could write this algorithm down in something like natural language on a piece of paper. Multiple pieces of paper, perhaps, might be a complex algorithm. And then that could be turned into code, which you could you know, put it into a particular computer language, maybe C++. And then you could program a computer with this particular algorithm. Presumably, that algorithm then would be an algorithm for creatively generating explanations. That algorithm is not made out of physical stuff. That algorithm can be represented in different physical substrates, represented in but not identical to either the paper on which it's written 
or the code in which it appears in the computer. But even then, represented as code in a computer or written down on a piece of paper, it's not yet mined. It's not yet mined. It's not mined until it starts to run, until it starts to do something. And so that's why it's an interesting kind of abstraction. Compared to something like a number, okay, the number two exists as an abstraction and can be written down as the numeral two that we're all familiar with, or as the set of symbols four over two, or the string of symbols, something like that, 10 minus eight, all of these things represent that number two. But there's no sense in which the number two needs to run like a program needs to run, like presumably mind would need to run in a computer in order for the computer to have a mind. In terms of how laws of physics are abstractions, well, that's very interesting. The laws of physics can't be made of matter. So because they're not made of matter, that means they have to be something other than matter. And so that's why we say they're abstractions. And so that's one sense in which they are abstractions. They're abstractions in a similar way to the number two being abstractions. However, they have very important causal effects on the stuff going on in the universe. Ultimately, they determine everything that goes on the universe. They don't explain everything that goes on in the universe. We've made that point before. And the interesting thing here is that we have knowledge of the laws of physics and our knowledge of the laws of physics amounts to abstractions. So we have abstractions our knowledge of the laws of physics, about abstractions, the ontological, actual, final laws of physics, which we come to understand over time with increasing fidelity. Third question from Ashik is, uh, your favourite chapters from The Beginning of Infinity and The Fabric of Reality, and also from Phil, um, what's your favourite chapter from each book? No ties. My two are shadows and the jump to universality for what it's worth. Yeah, so, okay, well, let's deal with um, the fabric of reality first. And I'm just, you can hear me turning the page perhaps, so I can go to the um, contents. Certainly, Shadows was the one that made me, and I've said this before, realise that I was in the presence, in terms of author, of someone who was writing at a different level to anyone else I had hitherto encountered because I was struggling to understand quantum theory and chapter two was the thing that made me feel as if I did finally understand what was going on. And so, yes, um, I have an emotional connection to Shadows, chapter two of The Fabric of Reality, because it's the one which really convinced me there's a multiverse. It's as simple as that. That's a realistic conception of quantum theory. And from then on, um, quantum theory became not this hugely esoteric subject, it became something more like hmm, geology and astronomy. I just got it. Even though other people refuse to accept, and we'll get to this in one of the final questions, refuse to accept the multiverse, uh, to me it's just a straightforward, simple explanation about what's going on. It was demystified. So that's all done in shadows in around 20 pages. So highly recommend reading shadows if you want to understand quantum theory. Now, uh, my second favourite chapter in The Fabric of Reality would be, as we've just been talking about, um, a, some, a chapter about the first time I understood really something more about abstractions, namely chapter 10, The Nature of Mathematics, where my favourite line, uh, if not of the whole book, certainly of that chapter, is necessary truth is the subject matter of mathematics. It is not the reward we get for doing mathematics. So that's from chapter 10 of the nature of mathematics, of the fabric of reality rather. And that appeals to me so much because prior to reading that, prior to really understanding what was being said there, I was one of the people that 
David was arguing against, namely a person, an intuitionist of a kind, someone who thought that mathematics was on a different level to every other kind of subject. It was a subject where you could really intuit certainty, where you had a solid foundation in thinking that you actually had the final truth. You were there, you were inherently able to understand particular truths. And so that brought me out of that particular state of mind. From then on, I understood that mathematics really depended upon our knowledge of physics. And if our knowledge of physics said that, well, matter behaves in these ways that could cause the symbols on the page, for example, to change, then it might very well be the case that what you think you have proven with a rock-solid mathematical proof could actually be an error. In fact, error had to always be part of the picture. And so, yes, uh, chapter 10 of The Fabric of Reality convinced me of that. The Beginning of Infinity, chapter 1, The Reach of Explanations, is probably my favourite chapter there. Now, the reason for that is, although I'd read The Fabric of Reality and thought I knew what it was saying, and then I subsequently read some Popper and thought I understood what he was saying, I never really got the fact <laughs> that at the heart of everything in science and everywhere else is this idea of explanations. And of course, there in chapter one, as David says, and we'll come to this in another chapter, he said before, this is where the real innovation happens in the fabric, in <laughs> the beginning of infinity, where David explains what a good explanation is, namely an explanation that's hard to vary while still doing the work of explaining the phenomena uh, that you're interested in. So that would be my favorite chapter from the beginning of infinity. And then I think um, I'd have to pick Chapter 12, A Physicist's History of Bad Philosophy, just because I'm interested in this topic of why don't people accept the best understanding of quantum theory? And well, it's explained there very, very well. Okay, It's explained the bad turns in philosophy that happened, which caused academics and professional quantum physicists to inherit this particular way of thinking. And this bad philosophy... This chapter on bad philosophy explains some of the things that are going wrong even now. So it's prescient in a sense. Once the philosophy goes wrong, once academic philosophy begins to go wrong, a whole bunch of other things can go wrong as well. So physics is kind of the canary in the coal mine to some extent. If physics itself can start to be upended by bad philosophy, then certainly politics, history, biology, Everything else can start to be upended by bad philosophy. So that chapter really tells you the reasons why you need to value philosophy. It's not merely something that is confined to the halls of academic institutions. It is there, but it leaks out. And if it goes bad there, the bad stuff leaks out everywhere. Next question from Tim Stevenson. Another question. Observation is theory-laden, but are facts also theory-laden? Is a fact not a theory that is said to be fallibly true? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, both of those things are true, I would say. A fact is fallibly true. Anything we think is a good explanation is, I would say, that's what I like to say, it's fallibly true, which sounds like a bit of a cop-out <laughs> because once you start putting qualifiers in front of true, like fallibly true, what you really mean is 
not true. So what I mean by fallibly true is something like, well, we're acting as though it's true for now. Okay, take it seriously as true, whilst keeping in mind that ultimately it has to turn out false. So that's what we mean by fallibly true. We just don't know how it's false yet. And if we don't know how it's false, then we can act on the assumption that it is true. And we even do this with things we know are actually false, like Newton's theory of gravity, as I keep coming back to that trope example. We know that it's false, but we can act as if it's true and solve problems using it. But Tim asks, um, are facts also theory-laden? Yes, yes. So uh, in the previous Ask Me Anything episode, people asked me what I thought a fact was, and I said it was just an elementary part of a particular theory. I don't think there's a strict line between fact and theory at all. I know that people who... Um, oh, look, you know, there, there are popular science communicators, there are even famous scientists, there are comedians, there are all sorts of people out there who like to try and put a strict line between facts and theory. So when we talk about the, the famous example that often comes up here is the theory of evolution. And people get very vociferous and they start, you know, bashing the desk and saying, but it's not a theory, it's a fact. Or something like the word theory in science means something different to the word theory anywhere else. All of which is false, okay. Um, the theory of evolution, it's both factual, okay. It's, it's something that is, so far as we know, true, at least uh, neo-Darwinism, the most modern versions of uh, evolution by natural selection that we understand involving genetics and so on and so forth. That's factual. It's a fact in some way or a set of connected facts. It's also a theory. It's an explanatory theory. And theories are ways of explaining the world, some of which are good and some of which are not good. So the real distinction is between good, hard to vary theories, hard to vary explanations, and less good and bad <laughs> explanations of the world. But yes, facts are theory-laden. Pick a fact. I mean, um, the sky is blue. Well, to me, it's blue. That's theory-laden because according to my eyes, the sky appears to be blue. Now, we could take a, a, a spectroscope, you know, one of these devices that measures the wavelength of the light, and we could find out the light coming from the sky has a particular wavelength, and that wavelength corresponds to what we define as blue light and via that chain of reasoning we end up with a conclusion that yes the sky is blue based on the readings of our instruments but of course all that depends upon the theory about how the instrument works okay so even if we have this global consensus that the sky is blue it still comes down to a theory about what blue is so it doesn't matter what your fact is there has to be theory behind it, an explanation as to how you're getting to that fact in the first place. That's what the theory-laden part is. You have a theory about how the knowledge has been generated. And that theory is fallible. And so therefore, you're reaching a conclusion that is fallibly true, as you say there. All right, moving on, a question from Danny. Thoughts on the mind-body problem? Uh -huh. um, I don't think it's much of a problem, really. Um, I think mind is software running on the body, the brain, and that's that. There's, there's certainly an open question about, you know, as we've already talked about so far this episode, as to what kind of program the mind is, what kind of software the mind is exactly, and how this software gives rise to a subjective sensation, consciousness in other words. The, 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 these are tough questions we don't have answers to at all. But in terms of mind-body, I think this is a, just an ancient issue about the thought that mind being immaterial, 
couldn't possibly have effects on things that are purely material. You know, so Descartes explained this, you know, that mind, whatever it is, might be a spirit of some kind, you know, a spirit that's inside of your body in some way. Your soul, your immaterial soul is somehow or other pushing around the physical stuff, your body. And I think he thought it was in the pineal gland inside the brain, which didn't really answer anything. It just pushed it to a different level. It, it sort of just kicked that explanation down the road, that non-explanation down the road. So the mind-body problem is not a real problem. The software controls the hardware. How does that work? Well, information in a computer is stored as a, a sequence of zeros and ones. But what does that mean? Well, if you go deeper, the, the ones are usually higher voltage signals and the zeros are lower voltage signals of some kind. A voltage is a difference in energy between uh, a set of charged particles, one set of charged particles, usually uh, electrons, in this case an el electrons, and another set of charged particles. So some of the charged particles have high energy, high voltage, some have lower energy, low voltage. Throughout a computer system stored in transistors, capacitors, whatever, you have a pattern of such charges, high and low voltages, which represent the zeros and ones in the memory of the computer. And as they move around the circuits, you're getting movement of these high and low voltages. So you've got actual physical things moving around. But the pattern is not material, right? Because you can represent that pattern of stuff as sequences of zeros and ones written on a standard piece of paper or on a blackboard or um, uh, typed out in a document somewhere. So that's abstract. That's not material because it's independent of its physical substrate. But it has to be instantiated somewhere. And once you put it into the computer and then you hit run on the computer program, well, then what you've got going on is a whole bunch of physical interactions. So this is what's going on with the mind. Okay, I'm explaining how software <laughs> affects hardware, but it's exactly the same principle because what's going on is the circuitry through the computer or the pattern of electricity that's moving through your neurons is actually physical forces upon things. So if we just stick to computers because they're, I think they're better understood, you know, the, your, your normal silicon computer, is that in a normal computer, the reason why the hardware does anything at all, why it moves, so to speak, why the pixels illuminate, why the speakers make noise, why the printer ribbon prints and so on and so forth, why stuff gets pushed around in the hardware is because of that pattern of zeros and ones. The pattern of zeros and ones represented as voltages and the voltages um, have high and low energy and the electrons can push things because they're, they're, actual, they're actually charged particles that can repel one another and those repulsions are physical forces. So that's it. The, 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 the abstractions have physical effects via that mechanism, via that physical mechanism, but they can't be reduced to nothing but that. After all, as we say, you can take that pattern of zeros and ones once more and write them out by hand as zeros and ones on a piece of paper. And there it is. You know, there it is. It's different to the voltages at that point. And the same must be true of what's going on in the brain. So I, so I think it's not a problem. It's been solved. It's been solved by us having a modern understanding of computation and how computation works. Okay, on to um, next question from Chrisman, Chrisman Frank. Um, would love to hear you talk about the ways Deutsch has improved on Popper and James Baird has said plus one. Okay, so uh, absolutely, and even David uh, 
has admitted this. Um, but, you know, he's very modest. He doesn't admit to improving on Popper in many ways, but he does say that the innovation in the beginning of Infinity is that he has explained what an explanation is. And he did that because people asked, and so he thought about all the different kinds of explanations that there were. But certainly, as a, as a specific thing, coming up with this idea of hard to vary while still doing the job of explaining. Popper never had that. And generalising that as being the... Well, I shouldn't say generalising. Emphasising that that really is the key, not only in science but everywhere, that we're after these good explanations. And this really is the line of demarcation between science and non-science. You can have falsifiable theories, which is what Popper, of course, came up with. He figured out that line of demarcation. But that's necessary but not sufficient in science to explain the difference between, for example, a homeopathic nostrum, a homeopathic treatment, and actual medicine. The actual medical treatment, that is going to make claims about treating a person's illness, but so too is the homeopathic remedy. So they're both going to be testable. But that doesn't mean just because of the fact it is testable that the homeopathic remedy is uh, scientific at all. It contains within it a bad explanation about how homeopathy works. So this, this distinction between good explanations and bad explanations is certainly an innovation by David Deutsch and an improvement on Popper. I would also say that David has really, certainly in my mind, linked morality and epistemology with this claim about do not destroy the means of error correction. That error correction is the thing that we need in order to continue to make progress. And I don't think Popper quite had that. And so there's this computational digital view of epistemology which bleeds into morality in a way. And I think that's an improvement on Popper. Popper was there with the way in which we need to have progress, but whether it was tied to error correction as explicitly as in the work of David Deutsch, I'm not sure. I think I think David's improved on that. And of course, the emphasis on optimism. Um, there is a flavour of optimism, which I think we could call optimism in the style of David Deutsch, that is unique and stands apart from any other kind of optimism that even exists today amongst the various other optimists as well, and wasn't really there in the same way in the work of Karl Popper. An explicit and very good explanation about why probability fails in so many places is something I don't think Popper quite got at, but David Deutsch does. And as I mentioned earlier with my favourite chapter in The Fabric of Reality, I think David really gets to the heart of the matter about articulating what the nature of mathematics is. So I think he improves on Popper there as well. And of course, absolutely explaining quantum theory. I think Popper tried to explain quantum theory, he failed, um, but David Deutsch has managed to do that. I think he even improves on Everett uh, for that matter. I mean, Everett was the first one to come up with this idea of the multiverse, but David Deutsch has brought it to a whole bunch more people, explained it more clearly. And so that's an improvement. That's an improvement on Popper, it's an improvement on his predecessors as well. And of course, my personal favourite of um, all of these advances that I think David Deutsch has made is on the nature of personhood. I think the advance in what he has said about what a person is, something that is just plagued philosophers for generations, millennia, to try and figure out what is it that a, that's about that is in us as human beings that is different to all other 
creatures that are out there. Everyone has come at this, who's thought about this and written about this and talked about this from a different angle, all of which capture aspects, I would say, of what the heart of the matter is now that we understand. People would say, oh, we've got morality or we've got art or we've got the ability to do science and this separates us from the lower creatures. But all of those are mere manifestations of the capacity to generate explanations of the world, which give us a real connection to the rest of reality because the rest of reality is what we're trying to explain and the fact that it's explicable by us makes us very special in this universe and tells us something about what we are. It's not the final answer to what a person is. After all, we don't know how it is that we generate explanations, but that we do generate explanations separates us from everything else, this connection to explanatory knowledge. And I think so that is absolutely a philosophical insight that stands alongside anything from the canon of Western and ancient philosophy. Okay, next question. Mike Stern, what is one of the core ideas from the beginning of infinity that you found most difficult to re-explain or clarify for people new to this work and why? Um, I guess sustainability. Sustainability is a hard one. It's such a, a, a common word thrown around these days and it carries these very strong moral overtones. And so trying to explain that the only thing that's sustainable for us, if we want to sustain ourselves, in other words, survive off into an infinite future, is constant progress, constant consumption of resources, constantly increasing our population, increasing our wealth, spreading out beyond the earth. This is the only thing that's sustainable for us. And not only us, but if you care about the panda bears, if you care about the dolphins, if you care about the forests, you want to hope that we can sustain the increased population, wealth creation and power of people. Because we know as a matter of science that if we don't do this, everything, absolutely everything on this earth, including the earth itself, will vanish in a cosmological event of some sort or other. Whether it is the sun eventually expanding to engulf the earth or something near the earth, or an asteroid or a number of asteroids hitting the Earth, or a supernova going off nearby, eventually, over the next billion years or so, life on Earth will be exterminated, us and everything else. If you don't want that to happen, then there's no point trying to sustain things at the present level to try and ensure the environment is unchanging, to try and ensure that climate does not change. It's interesting that, that, that we accept as a sort of moral maxim that the only constant is change, except when it comes to the climate, that we seemingly know the climate is changing, but we don't want it to. Well, whether humans do it or not, it's going to change. And so we should deal with that change. Possibly the best idea is to learn to live with the change in some way or other if we're not going to actively try and reverse the change. But this is where sustainability is brought up, always in these concerns about the environment, concerns about people just being a kind of evil that need to be damped down in terms of population growth. Always population growth is regarded as being the thing that is unsustainable. But in fact, it's the only thing that is sustainable. And so this is really hard to get across to people. And I think of all the messages in the bidding of infinity, this is the one that is yet to make inroads, but needs to make inroads uh, significant inroads because governments around the world are absolutely captured by the notion 
that population, for example, is a, is a pressing, urgent problem. But many of us on the other side of the ledger think, well, we agree, it's a pressing, urgent problem, but we need, <laughs> we need more. We need more people. We need a greater population of people living at a higher standard of living. But of course, on the other side, you hear people saying things, we need fewer people, and they need to be living more like our ancestors. They need to not have so much wealth, because the wealth is creating pollution and waste and, 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 and changing the environment, and we want to keep the environment as it is. Well, you, you can't do that without, well, if you want to keep the, the environment the same, you need a significant amount more wealth and more power and more technology in order to stop the climate from changing. Because even if we quit all fossil fuels tomorrow, and even if we left the earth to its own devices, the climate will change. That's just the nature of climate. It's it's like the weather, but on longer scales, longer time scales. So this is the thing that's really hard to get across. So there's that. And related to that is infinite progress. I mean, just so many people find it unbelievable, fantastical, that we could have infinite progress, that literally humans and their descendants will just go on forever solving problems and making this universe a better and better place. And we could, we could be the first generation to be a part of that. If only we worked harder to make more wealth and to solve problems and so on and so forth. And so it's hard to explain those two things without getting caught up in the emotion and, and the politics and encountering people that are touchy on these particular topics that are that are wedded to things like the you know concern for the environment and they just are dogmatically committed to the idea that humans bad, pollution bad, waste bad, large population bad and and, and just persuading them of the opposite are, is thwart with all sorts of political divisions and moral hazards. <laughs> Do you think there are ideas within the beginning of infinity, it's Mike's next question, are there ideas in the beginning of infinity that trace back farther than the Enlightenment, say to Judeo-Christian ideas, values or myths? Um, yes, sure, uh, every idea has a lineage. Now, I'm not one of these people necessarily, I, I hear some conservative commentators say that really there are two pillars to our civilization, philosophically speaking. One is the Greek tradition of philosophy, and the other is the Judeo-Christian ideas. I think the the Greek tradition it, tradition is far more important, far more important for a whole bunch of reasons we won't go into right now. But yeah, the Judeo-Christian ideas do have a place, and I think they were an escape from an even more primitive, more brutish way of existing in the world. Bad as it was, you know, I would happily live um, two thousand years ago. Uh, under a Christian or Jewish theocracy than in a hunter-gatherer tribe somewhere or other. Sure, the morality was oppressive, but it wasn't as bad as the constant warfare and the constant mistreatment of people within those societies. Uh, it was an improvement. Incremental, perhaps, but uh, an improvement nonetheless. And I guess key, the key thing from the beginning of infinity that really comports in some way, one might say, with... Many of the, the major religions is this the, the centrality of the person, which is lost in atheism to a large extent. If you simply have atheism or if you simply have uh, some other sort of political ideology, like, for example, forms of Marxism and, and things that flow from Marxism, communism, socialism, where you end up with uh, the value of the collective 
over the individual, uh, in fact, you lose sight of the individual person and the importance of the individual person, then all sorts of bad stuff follows. So the beginning of infinity certainly places the person there as the unit which creates, generates explanatory knowledge, and it's explanatory knowledge which transforms the world, transforms reality around us for the better. Putting that person, putting the person back at the center, putting planet Earth as a hub uh, has something to do with with things that with religions like Christianity, which uh, were the first crude attempt of doing something like that. I don't think there's anything whatsoever in the being of infinity which is at all mythological or religious. Uh, it's more coincidence than anywhere than anything else, except insofar as there is definitely virtue in putting people, putting a person at the center of your concerns within a society, if you're setting up a society, having the person there. And so I don't, the Christians and Jewish people and other people who are involved in major religions, they, I think, would have the inexplicit understanding that people are absolutely central to this whole project without being able to articulate why. I think the beginning of infinity articulates why from an analytical, philosophical tradition and a scientific viewpoint. So, yeah, I guess that would be the way in which I'd trace that, that particular idea, the centrality of the person, from the beginning of infinity back to antecedents that exist in um, religion. But I don't think David Deutsch got it from religion at all. I think he got it by independent means. Okay, next question from Ophalabalista. How do you see the spread of Deutschian ideas in the future? What is the plan? The plan? I don't think there is a plan. The plan, it sounds a little bit like a secret cabal. Uh, well, it's more up to you and anyone else listening, really. Uh, my hope would be that these ideas in the future continue to gain traction and inform individuals more and more. When they do that, they can inform groups of people. They can then inform the social well-being of whole communities, among other things, and civilization as a whole. The messages in the beginning of infinity give you if you take them on board, and there are certain other philosophies like this as well, they can help treat, I think, the malaise that is happening right now, cause people to not be terrified of other people constantly, or terrified of tomorrow, or despairing about tomorrow. Uh, it can lead you to have greater understanding and compassion for and interest in others, interest in, in others as a beginning of infinity, interest in others as being sources of ideas, as being generators of explanations, as being solvers of problems. That's what we want. And this is why I say we need more and more people. We need a greater population, not a smaller population. The only thing that we have a poverty of is ideas. We don't have a poverty of resources. We need more and more ideas about how to get more and more resources, in fact, and how to solve the problems that are going to be before us. And eventually there's going to be a problem that far outstrips anything that we've dealt with hitherto as a modern civilization. So we better want to hope that there's going to be a smart person out there that can contribute crucially to the solving of that experiment. And the more people we have, the more likelihood there's going to be that at least one of us creative people can come up with a solution in time. So this is what we need in the future. More people to have this stance of thinking of their neighbors as important means by which we can all solve our problems. But there's no there's no centralized plan on this and I don't think a centralized plan would be good 
at all. Everyone should have their own plan. What I'm doing is uh, a podcast. <laughs> uh, many of us are trying to promote these ideas publicly and more people should do this and more power to more people in doing this. Whether it be can become even bigger, even better, inform people that have even more wealth and power and influence, um, well, the future will tell. The future will tell. But certainly uh, we're trying and with Naval on board, um, the reach of these ideas has certainly increased over the last few years and will continue to increase. We only hope it happens in time, as I say. <laughs> I am hopeful that it will happen in time. I'm optimistic it will happen in time. Um, I'm not despairing that the problem is going to be encountered that we can't solve. Okay, so on to the next question from Rich Martin. You've advocated for rapid general progress and yet careful incremental changes to our institutions. This seems to be a contradiction. How do we resolve it? Great question, Rich. Yes, I do. Um, sometimes I think I've misspoken on this in that I've said um, slow changes to our institutions. Now, Rich hasn't said that here, but thinking back to what I've said, I, I may have seemingly contradicted myself. But the way in which Rich has put it there is not a contradiction at all because, and this is the way I do like to emphasise it, uh, the way Rich has put it there, I want rapid progress, but at the same time I want incremental changes. Incremental changes means you just change a small thing and then you check to see it's been an actual objective improvement. And that can take some time. But ideally, you would want incremental, a, a change, reflection, judgment, evaluation, if you might say, before moving on to the next change, observation of what's going on, judgment, evaluation of what's happened. So you know that these incremental changes are in the right direction. So we want as many of them as quickly as possible. And as many of those incremental changes as possible in quick succession would amount to rapid general progress for institutions. So I'm not for wholesale, like there's a lot of talk at the moment. I don't think these people necessarily, we hope they don't, have um, a huge amount of influence and power. People who want to completely upend the way in which uh, the major democracies of the world operate, the way in which they work, the way in which they have shown themselves to be resilient over time and allow for this, this stable, incremental, rapid ratcheting up of the rate at which progress can occur. Progress has only occurred in the Enlightenment tradition across Europe, parts of Asia now, uh, the Anglosphere, because of these institutions which allow for rapid progress. So there is no contradiction there. So the, the only time I have kind of contradicted myself, if I think back, and maybe I'm just being not very generous to myself, but I think I might have said, um, let's have slow changes to our institutions and rapid progress, you know, everywhere else kind of thing. But, but by slow, I think I, you know, intended to say something like incremental, as Rich has said there. But incremental doesn't mean slow. Digital systems are incremental. They, they move by increments, you know, one thing at a time is done. One task is accomplished then before you move on to the next one. And so when I say an incremental change in the institution, check to see this one change has had the desired effect. And if it doesn't, reverse it, undo it, go back and try something else. That's the way in which incremental change happens. But you can do that as rapidly as you like. So no contradiction. Um, next question from Matt McGann. In the spirit of criticism, because you've thought the most about this stuff, I'd like to know which parts of David work, David's work you think are incorrect or you disagree with. And along the same lines, Paul Simtis has asked, what did David get wrong 
or you disagree with? Um, both interesting questions. I think I've been asked these multiple times over the, the years now. Um, so I might, uh, I'd have to take a step back in order to answer this properly and to explain why I'm giving the answer that I'm about to give. Um, well, because I really became a fan of the work of David Deutsch soon after The Fabric of Reality was published. So that's, you know, 1997, what, 25 years ago or something. As I've said before, I was in the fortunate position to be a part of a community where we were able to discuss these ideas with David directly. So all the times that I thought I disagreed with David about the contents of The Fabric of Reality, all the times I thought, you know, I'm smart, I'm a physics student, I've studied philosophy and so on. I got to put my questions to David himself. I got to have them answered and clarified. And through that process, I ended up being persuaded that I was wrong, David was right. And the same happened after the publication of The Beginning of Infinity. I read it multiple times. Uh, and in doing that, you know, on the first reading, you might think, I don't really get that. I don't really understand it. Um, I think I disagree. You read it again, you go, oh, I get where he's coming from. And then if I still disagreed... I would be able to go to David. He was very receptive and very helpful in um, responding to questions and persuading me that uh, I was looking at things in a way that wasn't what he intended and, you know, so on and so forth. He would clarify things. And so then I'd come to a deeper understanding of this entire worldview. So since the podcast has been going, and it's only been going for, what, four years or something, I think um, um, a Podbean and YouTube telling me uh, have told me that it's about Mid-2018, it seems longer than that or something. But anyway, mid-2018 is only how long the podcast has been going for. So all the time before that, back to 1997, really was something like me working through all the places where I, I thought I disagreed with David. But when you disagree, that typically means, in these cases, that you misunderstand something. So although I thought I disagreed, I actually misunderstood and in talking about the ideas, I realised where the misunderstanding was. I understood, came to understand, and then I agreed. And so in large part because of that, because I came to agree with the contents of the books, and because the contents of the books were so amazing, and all my questions that I ever had were addressed adequately, you know, and I got to a point where I thought, well, there's nothing that I find I really strongly disagree with at all or disagree with at all. And so that's the motivation for the podcast, really. I mean, like, the better question is, why would you make a podcast about this book? Well, because it's a book where not only are the insights so amazing, but I can't find a place where I really have any significant disagreements with the book at all. And so that's why I'm promoting it so much and why I think it's you know, one of the reasons, apart from the fact that it's civilizationally important, but I don't find any errors in there. It might seem astonishing for me to say that, that I can't find a place where I disagree, but that's the fact. I, I don't. Now, me personally, and you know, when I'm explaining the ideas, of course, I have a personal bias and a personal emphasis, which might be slightly different to what David does, but that's just personal taste. It's not actual explicit disagreement so far as I can tell. So um, what did David get wrong? I guess the most generous way I can put that is I don't know. What do I disagree with? Nothing that I can think of and I have thought about this before previously. Next question from Hamza. Why does Deutsch object to the fact that morality is about suffering? What does it mean when morality is considered to be a question of what to do next? Do moral facts exist because of our existence? Is free will, consciousness, explanatory knowledge fundamentally tied? Um, why does Deutsch object to the fact that morality is about suffering? Does he? 
Or does he just say that that can't be a foundation? And the reason it can't be a foundation is because we don't need a foundation anywhere. We don't need a foundation in physics. We can always ask why the foundations are the way they are. What we're after is good explanations. And that's true in physics and biology and history. And it's true in morality as well. So I think that morality, certainly explanations within morality can touch upon suffering and the alleviation of suffering. No problem whatsoever. The distinction is between whether or not suffering and the alleviation of suffering, utilitarianism and uh, those kind of um, consequentialist arguments in morality, whether that has to be your final, ultimate, unalterable foundation for morality, or whether you might also need to consider other things, or whether your problem situation might entail not regarding suffering as being the most important thing. As I like to say, my, my thinking on this is there will still be moral questions, questions about what we should do next, absent suffering. I think suffering is a solvable problem. It's a soluble problem. Suffering is something like pain with an explanation accompanying it. So you could have mental suffering, mental anguish, so you're going through this mental pain, this stress, whatever else you want to call it. That's a form of suffering. You're being coerced into suffering, even if someone's not literally sticking pins into your thumbs. You might be coerced in some way, shape or form, even if you're not under in physical pain. You can be in mental anguish. That's a form of suffering. We, I can imagine a, a universe in which that's alleviated, in which people aren't routinely coercing one another into things. Everyone's just freely exploring the right thing to do for them and they're not hurting anyone else and everyone's being rational and reasonable and so on. So there's no mental suffering. As for physical suffering, I can imagine a world in which we overcome that as well via technology and medicine and you know, an and advanced, distant future where pain has been alleviated for the most part or, or, or entirely. You know, I can imagine a, a world in which uh, we exist in that state. But that doesn't mean that morality ends, even if suffering has. There would still be a question about what to do next. You know, what projects to undertake in your own personal life? Civilizationally, what we should do? Should we go to this planet or that planet? Should we embrace this architecture for the next best computer or that architecture? We're building a virtual reality environment. Which one do you want to go into and to, and to experience? So on and so forth, ad infinitum. Which uh, physics theory do you want to get on board with and make contributions to? What you should do is a moral question, right? This is the central question in morality. What should you do next? And if you're suffering, you should try and alleviate your suffering, obviously. But that's a solid. Any particular moral question is a soluble one. And the question of suffering is soluble. I think even that the, the Buddhists accept this, that, 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 that um, the, the best understanding of what they're about is dissatisfaction. And so I don't think all dissatisfaction is suffering you know you can be dissatisfied you can be not um, content with where you are right now I don't know if that necessarily means you're suffering you might have a whole bunch of options before you all of which are great but you need to try and figure out which of these fantastic options that are before you in a world of no suffering that you want to do next and that's a moral question so that that deals with the first two questions do moral facts exist independent of our existence well it, it depends on what you mean by our if you mean Human beings that live right now, well, yes, uh, they, they, they do. I mean, because there could be other people in the universe. And I think that has to answer the question. I mean, there are people who existed in the past, so those moral facts existed for them. The, um, but if you just take away all people everywhere, well, I think the question is like, does history exist without our existence? You know, does, does politics exist without our existence? Does art exist 
or our beauty exist without our existence? And I think that question is, I think those style of questions aren't solving a problem, is what I would say. You know, what problem are you trying to solve in determining whether or not these moral facts can exist without a priori the existence of any person ever, anywhere? It's kind of like, does human biology exist in some ontological way without humans ever having evolved in the universe? Well, <laughs> what problem are we solving by even trying to come at that question? It's a very, very abstract, very removed from any practical issue question. Uh, it's, I would say, it's like pseudo-philosophy kind of thing. What place does morality have absent any conscious creatures whatsoever? Well, I don't think that it's, a, it's like a necessary truth almost. Absent a physical universe of any kind, what is the meaning of mathematics? You know, does, does mathematics exist? Well, nothing exists if you don't have a physical universe of any sort. We could get ourselves tied up in these pseudo-problems until the end of time. So, yeah. Is free will, consciousness, explanatory knowledge fundamentally tied? Yes, I think so. I think all of these things are fundamentally tied. We don't know how, and I should say we don't have an explanation Um I conjecture ways in my blog. If you look up, I think the title of the blog is something like Free Will Consciousness and Knowledge, something like that, or Creativity and Knowledge. Uh, for people watching on YouTube, I'll put it up on the screen. I'll put a link on the screen. I'll try to remember to anyway. Yeah, I think that something like my perhaps too clever by half way of explaining this is to say that the creative act of explaining something um, – w- is what it feels like to be conscious. So you're, you're, that, that experience of being a creative entity is what we call consciousness. Now, for anyone outside of you observing you, they can't observe your consciousness, but they can observe your creative output, which is the unique thing about you, is your creative output, and the thing that distinguishes people in general from all other animals. And if this is true, of course, this solves a whole bunch of moral issues, which I won't get into right now, but it would say that consciousness is tied to the capacity to create explanatory knowledge. It may not be. I'm happy to be wrong about that. Now, free will is this capacity to choose to create explanatory knowledge. And people can choose to be fully focused on the creative enterprise or not. And this is where free will comes in. Now, many people disagree with free will, but, you know, I think that free will is just this term that helps to explain what is going on with people. If you want to do away with it and say, well, you know, people ultimately aren't the choosers of their choices. Okay, well, yeah, nothing is the ultimate cause of anything. Okay, there's always going to be another explanation, another layer at which you can get to that explains the thing that's happening now. But if I say the thing that's happening now is a choice is being made, why is the choice being made? Because I'm freely able to do so and my, my will is free. I'm free to choose amongst these different things. And one of the things I'm freely choosing to do is to use my will in order to generate explanations. Well, yeah, if you don't want to use free will, I just I find I have to do linguistic acrobatics in order to deny the existence of free will. This is why I endorse it. So I think these things are absolutely tied together. Uh, well observed. Yes. Next question. From Christian Dean, taking Deutsch Popper seriously, Ayn Rand's objectivism seems to be the only current socio-political theory that follows from them. Your thoughts on it, and if it survives criticism, must it eventually prevail? Um, follows from, I don't know if it follows from them, does it? Um, well, look, I, I'm not an Ayn Rand scholar. I'm a fan of Euron Brook. I, in listening to Ayn Rand, in reading Ayn Rand's work, I just personally find Euron Brook 
much more captivating, much more compelling, a better expositor of those ideas than Ayn Rand was. I think Ayn Rand was wrong in many, many ways. Of course, my central interest in a lot of these things is epistemology. Um, and so, of course, I have major gripes with the epistemology, but also the morality as well. So th th that's where I think she's wrong, but you know, I'm still a fan of a sort but I'm more a fan of Euron Brook, as I say. I think that Euron, using the ideas of Ayn Rand, does the best job of defending free markets that I know of and defending capitalism and defending freedom and so on. I think that it's a really well-informed, robust, uh, resilient way of explaining the facility of those things, the moral importance of those things. I think Rand was and remains absolutely an iconoclastic thinker, and I agree there's virtue to, for example, selfishness. But I think she underestimates um, things like tradition. Tradition is really, really important in explicit knowledge, really, really important. I don't think it makes, uh, it's not mentioned uh, in her work, in explicit knowledge. And I certainly get, I get that notion from Euron, who is certainly animated to debate, for example, conservatives on this point. They should otherwise be on a similar side of the ledger. I think um, the main fight right now is against authoritarians uh, on the left side of politics. I think we do not know all the ways in which a society remains stable over time. And we don't know all the ways that knowledge is instantiated in our institutions. And these institutions are important to maintain that stability and allow for that progress. And I think this is underestimated in the work of objectivists. So I don't think that undoing a whole bunch of them in rapid fire is necessarily going to be a recipe for a better society. You know, um, uh, look, I, I'm just going to, uh, I haven't read anything um, this AMA. So let me go to, there's an article on the Ayn Rand lexicon, uh, all about tradition on Ayn Rand's view of, object, of, of tradition. And I'm just going to read a paragraph here and then, I, then I'll, I'll, I'll comment on this paragraph that I read. So Rand writes on the topic of tradition, quote, the plea to preserve tradition as such can appeal only to those who have given up or to those who never intended to achieve anything in life. It is a plea that appeals to the worst elements in men and rejects the best. It appeals to fear, sloth, cowardice, conformity, self-doubt, and rejects creativeness, originality, courage, independence, self-reliance. It is an outrageous plea to address to human beings anywhere, but particularly outrageous here in America, the country based on the principle that man must stand on his own feet, live by his own judgment, and move constantly forward as a productive, creative innovator, end quote. So I think that's just extremely confused about the role of tradition, namely the tradition of criticism and how this tradition of criticism, this tradition of innovation, okay, so she's got innovation there. She thinks that innovation somehow just happens you just follow in the Enlightenment tradition and you will get innovation. But that's just not true. We don't know exactly how it is that we've remained stable over time. Great Britain, Europe, the United States, Australia, Canada, these, these places, parts of Asia, over long stretches of time, we've managed to continue to be innovators roughly peacefully. And it is the traditions and the institutions that have allowed us to do that. So this innovation and this creative stuff that Ayn Rand loves, this individuality, the courage and the independence, happens within traditions, and specifically a tradition of criticism that we talk about often here as well. So, you know, that that's terribly misguided, I think, by 
um, Ayn Rand. I'd love to talk to Yaron Brook specifically about that kind of thing. What are the traditions and the institutions within our society that allow for open-ended progress and rapid progress? Yes, we need to value the individual. I certainly do. The individual is the prime originator of ideas and we need to protect that. But how we go about protecting that individual is a whole other question. And to ensure a stable society over time, especially when a whole bunch of people don't agree with you that the individual is so important, especially when you have a whole bunch of people right now who think the collective is the more important thing. And just on that passage, just uh, I think that passage is a good example. I think Rand is bad at persuasion. Now, the people who like Rand like Rand, but the people who don't, can you see why? I can. Yes, of course, she's terribly forthright and she's honest about the contents of her own mind. The problem is that that style turns people off. And you either have to be a realist on that point or not. The realistic take is your style of speaking and writing is turning people off. But I'm just being honest. Well, not good enough. Some of your ideas are absolutely fantastic. But if you want those ideas to be persuasive and to really take off, you need a new way of packaging them. So thank God for your Ron Brook on this point, because he is seemingly willing to engage in these discussions in a much more <laughs> friendly way. And I think a lot of the objectivists are much more friendly now. So, you know, in a passage like that, you know, it's understandable that some people get turned off by being told, you know, <laughs> they've given up <laughs> or that they're sloths or sloth-like. <laughs> I think that the, the, this use of pejoratives fails to achieve what she hopes. It's like, you know, when certain famous biologists insult religious people or even religious ways of thinking, when you end up getting focused on the contents of a particular individual's mind rather than certain objective ideas out there. It just turns people off, you know. You, the 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 new atheists at times were only ever speaking to their fan base. They were never really persuading people to give up on religion because the way in which they went about it was hectoring and insulting. And you know, some of us quite enjoyed, you know, watching Christopher Hitchens get up there, you know, and, and give it to uh, whoever the uh, Bible thumping priest was. Fun, okay, that's all fun. But in terms of a person who was a follower of the Bible, you were on the side of the Bible thumper and you weren't persuaded by Christopher Hitchens. Some were, some people were, but you know, if this was a good technique, why weren't a majority of people persuaded? Why aren't they persuaded to listen to people who hector you act like that? So yeah, there's a sense in which just tone and use of language has a lot to do with how persuasive a particular message is going to be. That's just reality. <laughs> oh, and of course, the finally on, on Ayn Rand here, um, I can't stand the word, the term objectivism, the, the self-described objectivism, especially when the epistemology is totally subjectivist, for reasons I won't go into now, I've talked about this at length on other podcasts, and even the morality is subjectivist. It's all about the, the individual, which is important. It's part of morality, but it can't be the basis. So go back to the previous question for that one. Next, questions from Michael Chang. When we say that a phenomenon requires explanation, such as the initial conditions of the universe, what is the problem that such an explanation solves? If a problem is a conflict between ideas, what are the ideas that are in conflict in this situation? In that situation, the conflict is between the various different initial conditions that could have obtained at the beginning of the universe. Why were the initial conditions what they were 
rather than something else. So the initial conditions of the universe require explanation because they could have been otherwise, so far as we know. There have been attempts over time from mathematically minded types to try and produce a set of initial conditions that are necessarily the case given some deeper set of physical laws. So if you went below the laws of physics as they are known, general relativity and quantum theory, if you went below them to some ultimate theory of everything kind of thing, then out of that ultimate theory of everything would come the initial conditions. And those initial conditions are just there necessarily as, as the case. Now, even if we could come up with a solution like that to the reason why the initial conditions are the way they are, because they are necessarily the case, we'd still have the question as to why those deeper laws of physics, that ultimate theory of everything, is the way it is and why it wasn't some other particular law of physics. Now, as for the initial conditions necessarily falling out in a particular way, I don't know it's the prevailing view amongst quantum cosmologists, particle physicists, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think most people expect that the initial conditions could have been otherwise, that whatever the successor to quantum theory is, a quantum theory of gravity or something like that, that the parameters, these initial conditions, could have been otherwise. Now, perhaps constructor theory can have something to say about this. I don't know. I'm not an expert. Just apologies as well at this point. If you can hear any tap, tap, tapping, it's because uh, I'm experiencing a fairly heavy rainstorm at the moment here in Sydney, and it's... Uh, and so large drops of rain are coming horizontally up against the window right now. Second question from Michael. How can we reconcile the claimed objectivity of knowledge with the apparent subjectivity of problems? Problems only exist if solving them is useful, but utility is defined with respect to a particular person. What may be useful to one person may not be useful to another. Aha. Okay, so here... I think you may be conflating two kinds of objectivity. The objectivity of knowledge means that the knowledge is out there in the world instantiated in things other than subjective minds, individual minds. So it can be written in books, it can be instantiated in computers, it can even be in physical objects, as I like to say, like telescopes instantiate the knowledge of how to focus light. So that's the sense in which the knowledge is out there in objects. Now, the subjectivity of problems means that the subject, an individual person, has a problem. So there's no problem here. Sometimes you, so there's no, no real issue here. There's no, no need to reconcile these things. It's just the fact that a person has problems and those problems can sometimes be resolved by calling on objective knowledge. If my personal subjective problem is, hmm, I don't really think that Jupiter has planets going around it. That's my subjective problem. I don't believe all the images that's ever been shown. So that's your subjective problem. Now, if you take a telescope, the telescope instantiate objective knowledge about how to focus light, as I said, and it will reveal to you and it will solve your problem about how many moons you can see orbiting Jupiter. And you say utility is defined with respect to a particular person. What may be useful to one person may not be useful to another. Yep, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, you might also have utility for a particular community as well. But more often than not, in these cases, you're going to be drawing upon objective knowledge. Treatments in medicine are kind of like this. A treatment for one person might not be an effective treatment for another person, but it will still, the treatments, whatever they are, still constitute objective knowledge, even though the subjectivity of the problem is going to come down to a personal, very personal biology and the way in which that personal anatomy, physiology, biology interacts with a particular medicine, a particular treatment. And third question from Michael, you've said differences between humans and machines is humans can create 
new choices, but machines only ever search over a predefined set of possibilities. Aren't new choices just abstractions over more primitive possibilities, though? Couldn't machines also generate new choices via abstraction? Okay, so if a machine can generate new choices via abstraction, then they would be a general purpose choice generator, a general purpose problem solver. They would be people, and in that case, machine would be a pejorative. It would be insulting. A machine is mechanized. It's an automaton of some kind. So it has to obey a particular sequence of steps. It's just doing one thing after another. It's following a particular, it's slavishly following a program. A human's not doing that. As we say, a human's creating new choices. So that's my delineation. Well, other people might have different delineations, but better, better than saying humans and machines, we could just say humans and non-humans, or better yet, more general, people and non-people. Okay, so people are these things that can create new choices because they generate new explanations, which bring things into the world that hitherto weren't there. And so therefore they can choose among these new things. I think the example I've used before is once you have the explanation of nuclear physics, and perhaps the engineering explanation of how to create a fission reactor, then you have the choice. You have a new choice before you that you didn't have before. Namely, do you want to continue to produce energy via or electricity via the method of burning coal using a turbine? Or do you want to use the heat generated via the fission reactions in uranium in a uranium nuclear reactor to generate electricity? Both of them will boil the water and create the steam that you need, but you have a choice that you didn't have before because you didn't understand nuclear physics. Now, if a machine could come up with generating that kind of new choice, if it could generate an explanation, for example, a, a an artificial intelligence of the future, if it was able to create a proper explanation, which had predictions and so on, of how to use, I don't know, quarks of some kind, some kind of exotic quark in order to generate a kind of fusion reaction that hitherto we didn't know about, um, and a tiny amount of matter was able to produce a stupendous amount of energy, if a machine did that, I think we should accept, or an artificial intelligence could do that. I think we should accept we're in the presence of an explanation generator, we're in the presence of a person, and presumably that thing could be asked questions, if indeed it can explain something like this sophisticated scientific theory, presumably it could also explain what it's experiencing right now. And if it's experiencing something, we're in the presence of a person, and not merely something that could be or should be described as a mere machine, like a car. So uh, a question from a patron who didn't quite get in before the deadline last time, but I've included him here from Anders. Hi, Brett. One of your patrons here and a big fan. Thanks for all that you do. Two quick questions. Number one, it seems in general that many of the many from the Popper Deutsch school seem to be fairly libertarian. You and Naval case in point. Did Popper or Deutsch influence this direction? Or do you consider their thoughts agnostic between, for example, libertarianism and conservatism, as long as error correction is maximised? Well, let's deal with that one straight away. Yeah, definitely. I think my road to embracing freedom more than I did previously was absolutely helped along by David Deutsch, absolutely helped along by Karl Popper. Once I understood that what we need is rapid progress, every time I saw a thing out there in the world which seemed to slow down progress for bad reasons I thought was an urgent problem that needed addressing. You know, I take seriously this idea uh, from Fabergreale and Begin Infinity that, you know, we would be immortal now if there weren't these times during which progress halted. 
slowed down, stopped. We should want to have more and more rapid progress. And uh, there, there are people on, against that. And uh, I'm against authority in every way, shape and form. I think it is the antithesis of people being able to freely, individually explore the space of ideas, solve their own problems. Once you have an authority making a decision for everyone, then if that decision is the wrong decision, then everyone makes the same wrong decision. Everyone makes the same error. You don't know what a correct decision might have been. But if you have, you know, 10,000 people each doing subtly different things, even if 9,000 of them all end up in failure, you've learned something from the one, well, you've learned something from the 9,000 people who failed, but you also know that, hey, those 1,000 people have something to teach the rest of you. Uh, But if you have an authoritarian system where, well, all 10,000 people are just going to have to do exactly the same thing, then if it goes wrong and we should expect it to not be perfect and it will go wrong in some way, shape or form, uh, we've only trialed out the one idea. So this is the argument for libertarianism or forms of libertarianism. Uh, I would would just say anti-authoritarianism in whatever way, shape or form that is, which is why, you know, I appeal to people who are against authoritarianism to broadly come together because I think that's the main fight is against authoritarianism. And so broadly speaking, modern conservatives are against authoritarianism. Libertarians, broadly speaking, are against authoritarianism. The Ayn Rand objectivists are against authoritarianism. The free marketeers are against authoritarianism. So, And that is the, that is the major concern I have now. I share that with uh, many other people. So, so once you value progress, knowledge creation, creativity, you realize that the enemy of creativity and the enemy of reason is coercion, authority, force, that kind of thing. And so you're led down this road. Now, of course, many of us on this side, in this particular uh, strand of uh, the Popperian worldview, the David Deutsch's worldview, still value tradition, as I said earlier, for all the reasons I said. And those traditions, they have guardrails of a kind. That doesn't mean the guardrails can't be changed or tinkered with and so on and so forth. But it just means that outside of those guardrails, we know that there are ways towards chaos and the ending of progress because all the other dead civilizations didn't have those same guardrails. Even in the best cases where you have, you know, Athenian society, they had some guardrails, but the guardrails apparently were not sufficient in order to preserve their society. Now, our guardrails are like, you know, the very fast train that's going along these guardrails is making rapid progress. That doesn't mean you can't change the gauge now and again. That doesn't mean you can't make improvements along the way. But you have to take seriously the idea that at the moment, you've got the best thing that has ever existed so far. And when you start talking about devaluing tradition, for example, what you're saying is what's working so far, what has worked so far, there's a problem with it for reasons of we could only go faster if only if. If only if we just took the rails away, maybe the train would go faster. If only if we threw the engine away, maybe we could get the train to go faster. If only we stopped using this fuel and we just threw that fuel into the engine, even though that fuel doesn't work in that engine, maybe the train will go faster and we'll have more rapid progress, more creativity, greater innovation, all that kind of thing. So this is why we value tradition and institutions, because none of us really know exactly all the reasons why this particular train, this train of rapid progress, works as well as it does. We have some explaining to do, and with that, that, that's part of this open-ended game of explanation that we're playing, is not only in making scientific advances and moral advances, but also understanding our own culture. That's a really, really important part of this. And the way in which we understand anything is via this libertarian view of things. What the authoritarians tend to say these days, of course, is the train itself, in and of itself, is an evil. 
and we need to stop the train. Uh, we need to turn the train around and go in the other direction. Or we need to destroy this train and just start all over again, okay? Which is an absolute recipe for disaster. And everyone, the conservatives, the libertarians, the objectivists, um, uh, people in free marketeers, we need to be on the same side against that because that is a really strong push right now. Um, so are there thoughts agnostic between libertarianism and conservatism? I, uh, possibly. I don't know enough about, uh, especially the work of Karl Popper on uh, what his view of the distinction there might be. I know that he definitely valued tradition, of course, absolutely. So he may have been more conservative kind of thing, less libertarian, don't know, but certainly he valued freedom. And, you know, they, these people are, you know, everyone from Mill and Adam Smith through to Rand and through to Popper, they they value freedom and liberty in slightly different ways to different extents, but that's what we need to concentrate on now, the fact that they, they all value liberty. Okay, next question. It seems there is a beef between Papa Deutsch and the formal education system. Is this elaborated anywhere in their text? Not covered to my recollection of BOI or FOR. In general, are there good resources for the Papirian view on child rearing? Yeah, you need to look up um, taking children seriously. Um, on the Do Explain podcast, uh, Sarah uh, gave an interview about the taking children seriously philosophy. Michael Golding's also an expert in this area. Luli Tannett's an expert in this area. And, of course, David Deutsch, who originated this particular philosophy, this idea of non-coercion in child-rearing. And that's a complex issue. That's not simply just let the child run free on the highway and let them do what they want. No, it is far more nuanced than that. Uh, you have to have a proper, sophisticated, philosophical view of what non-coercion is. Uh, it's just to say that, and, and again, you can, as with anything else, um, you can infinitely improve and iterate and, and, and just improve parenting. Parenting today is a heck of a lot better than it was five generations ago, clearly. Same as education is, clearly. You know, I have I've spent a lot of time in education. I have a, a lot of problems with the formal education system. It is a system of indoctrination. It is uh, increasingly politicized. It's increasingly seen as a body of facts. And insofar as I think I was tweeting about this recently, well, I was, I did a thread on this recently about um, the idea that you hear teachers and academics exalting the praises of teaching them how to think rather than what to think. But I just think that, you know, this whole idea of how to think is a real dead end in education right now. Children are being taught how to think. How to think in the wrong way, how to defer to authorities, how to think about things like inequality, how to think about things like capitalism and so on and so forth. So it leads to a whole bunch of really bad what's. So I'm extremely skeptical, critical of uh, these pushes for teaching children how to think in a school. I think schools are ill-equipped to teach children critical thinking. I tried while I was there in the schooling system to bring in a certain vision of what critical thinking is, to, to make it really critical of the curriculum as it was, but uh, there was very little love for that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the schools are increasingly, I'm on the side of the people, who are very, very worried about the way in which schooling is turning into more and more political indoctrination. It's always been a system of indoctrination, but at least, you know, decades ago, well, not that long ago, really, you know, living memory, decades ago, a generation ago, at least it in science class, you could get science. At least in history class, you could get relatively objective history of a form. Now everything's political. Everything's political. Every single subject area seems to be mired in climate change and um, uh, denigrating people. Uh, surprisingly, you know, even in Catholic schools, which is one place you would hope that you had uh, a refuge from people, individuals, human beings being run down as destructive in the environment. Well, there's a thing called eco-theology that I've talked about on my podcast before now as well. So how this happens is 
because there are ideologues, there are uh, you know, people motivated primarily to try and win more converts for their side of politics. It used to be the case that you wouldn't really know what the political views of your teachers were. Nowadays you do. And there is, let's admit it, only one kind of politics that is really acceptable in many, many schools now. Good luck if you're an actual conservative. Good luck if you're an actual libertarian and trying to work within a school. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very concerning in many ways and many children have to go through, many school students have to go through this farce of pretending to believe uh, one thing in order to get marks and once they, they get out hopefully they become actual critical thinkers. So there should be a beef between the Papa Deutsch view of knowledge for example and the formal education system. After all, the formal education system is the bucket theory in action. It's this idea that you just sit in front of the teacher and you just absorb the knowledge, right? No matter what the mechanism is, you can fiddle at the edges with the different teaching and learning styles. This is what educationalists and teachers talk about. But effectively, there is a body of knowledge, there is a list of facts that the student has to acquire and they're going to be tested on in order to achieve the qualifications to graduate from high school. But we know, this is why Popper has this essay in Objective Knowledge called The Bucket and the Searchlight, and the searchlight is, it's far more about coming to a critical understanding of knowledge. Having a problem situation yourself that's very individual to you, you develop your own interests over time and you become expert in those areas that you're interested in. This is completely different to what school is. School is just a mishmash of everything. Now, I personally like school, I personally did well at school, but that's just me. The overwhelming majority of people are not like this, and I don't think they should be forced through this. But it's weird. The people that often do poorly at school, they come out of school and then they want their children and uh, young people around them to do well at school, <laughs> as if uh, their bad experience isn't some sort of refutation of the system itself. Okay, next question. The question is, any prerequisites for understanding the beginning of infinity? What else material, what other material should I read before or with the beginning of infinity that's worth as much to improve judgment, logic and observation? Thanks in advance. Oh, Sandeep, um, I would say oh, this is hard because different people have expressed to me things that have pushed my own intuitions around about what I thought about the beginning of infinity prior to, prior to making this podcast. Uh, I was largely speaking to people about the beginning of infinity who were very much fans of the beginning of infinity from day one kind of thing and were kind of more on board with the views of David Deutsch and had some understanding of physics, some understanding of epistemology and so on and so forth. So we all kind of just thought naively, I suppose, that, well, anyone can pick up this book and, and get a lot out of it, because we did. But if you're coming to this brand new, I, I think, well, you, there's probably two types of people. Um, I think a lot of people can absolutely pick up the book and take away something from it. And then it's how much you take away from it. I think a lot of people can take a lot away from it uh, without having any background whatsoever. So it's absolute, absolutely worth getting the book and just reading. Certainly that chapter one, The Reach of Explanation, should help a lot of people. But yeah, I do accept that once you start getting to like chapter four, creation, um, chapter six, the jump to universality, um, chapter eight, a window on infinity, you know, some of these things, they're going to require a at least some understanding, some background in mathematics, um, biology, uh, uh, even computation to a certain extent, to some extent anyway. Certainly chapter 11, the multiverse, yeah, th that would not be my first go-to for trying to understand quantum theory. The way, the way in which if, if someone had no understanding of physics but was interested in, in getting a, 
a reasonable understanding of physics, especially quantum physics, would be to pick up a typical textbook, uh, just any old textbook, it wouldn't really matter what, and try and understand quantum theory from that. Good luck, okay? You, you, you will struggle. Or go to uh, YouTube these days, of course, and just watch a lecture on quantum theory, an introductory lecture on quantum theory, see if you understand what's going on. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. I would then say compare whatever you're getting on YouTube or from the textbook to chapter two of the Fabric of Reality Shadows because it's just so clear and simple about what's happening, what's going on there, that if you go in with an open mind, I think you come out the other end and you just go, okay, well, that's pretty straightforward. There's some interesting insights there that might be hard to take on board, but I'll get to that in the next question. I think you can go a long way to understanding aspects of quantum theory as well as many people understand quantum theory. And then from that, you might want to go to the most modern version of that, which is the multiverse chapter, chapter 11 in the beginning of infinity, which is a step up, I would say. This, uh, you know, the, the use of the term fungibility and uncountably infinite numbers of universes and all this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so, so in that sense, uh, yeah, that, that chapter of the beginning of infinity, I think probably has prerequisites. It's really, and Naval has said, you know, he's really, it seems uh, to some people that he's writing for physicists. He's writing for his peers. So uh, if you if you think that, then yeah, you will need some basic knowledge of science. But not as much as what people think, I don't think. I think you can get through it, and I think you should uh, have a go at reading it. What else could you read to improve judgment, logic, and observation? Um, or just general thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Read um, The Fabric of Reality first. <laughs> Instead of The Beginning of Infinity, go for The Fabric of Reality. Um, the, the chapters there on thinking and reasoning, um, you know, I, I read sort of um, well, basically um, at the beginning of my university studies and there's, I can't remember at the time uh, struggling super much with any of the content there really, especially the stuff that's chapter three, problem solving. Anyone can read that and um, take a lot away from it. If you can read, you can read that chapter and you'll learn a lot. Hopefully that helps Sandeep. From Ashish, question for the next AMA. If a person has struggled academically throughout their lives, life, then does that signal a lack of knowledge about the academic structure, system, or lack of knowledge about the learning, about learning things or both? I think it's a shared responsibility, really. Um, if you're struggling academically, well, that's certainly a warning sign, isn't it? That's a criticism of what's happening. Now, it might very well be one of two things or a combination of both. One is you're not actually interested in the thing that you're doing. You're not really, really committed to it. If you're going along to lectures at a university and you're struggling to understand, but you're not simultaneously, these days especially, going on YouTube, reading lots of books, talking to people about the content of your lectures, then how committed are you really to that particular subject? You know, if you're really committed to a particular thing, then it becomes your life. You're just ensconced in it, you're surrounded by it, and even if you have a bad lecturer, you should be able to get over it to some extent. Now, if you really have a terrible lecturer who makes it uninspiring such that you're not even interested to to go and explore these ideas outside of lecture time then yeah that's that's a problem with the academic structure and the system and of course if you proceed through the system like you know you start university let's not talk about school let's just stick with university and you're really really committed day one there on let's say mathematics you you want to be a mathematician of some sort and you have to take all these different courses you know this was my story you have to take calculus and you have to take a thing called discrete maths and you might take mathematical logic and you know there's all these 
different subjects within the subject of mathematics, different topics that you have to do, different um, units you have to get, units of credit you have to get in order to get the degree. Well, you might start off really, really curious and interested in all of them, and then you go through and you get to the point of the exam, and then the exam is just a terrible experience. It's hard. Uh, you walk out of it just feeling dejected and awful. Even if you did well, sometimes these exams at university are just so hard that you feel awful. That's not a great way to learn, is it? I mean, if you're you know going through these uh, terribly negative emotions, that's part of the learning process, which so often is part of this formal system of learning, namely examinations, namely someone telling you, you didn't learn what you should have learnt, then it's going to turn you off continuing to be passionate about that particular subject. So yeah, there is this entirely systemic problem about that whole formalized system, which, you know, goes back centuries. The Chinese were doing it, for example, um, hundreds of years before we started ever doing it, putting people in classes, having them learn things by rote and then uh, answering exam questions on it. It's a great way to destroy creativity. There are better ways of doing it, but at the moment, it seems to be the only way that... Uh, Formally, people are getting qualifications and degrees in these different things. In certain places, it works well. I think that in medicine, for example, if you're just a doctor and the whole idea is that you see particular symptoms in a patient and there is only a fixed list of possible diseases that are known to cause those symptoms, then offering the treatment you know, in a sort of rote way, learning what the particular treatment is in a rote way, uh, is the function of the doctor to some extent, or learning how to do a particular surgery. But of course, you just still want creative thinkers. But but there are you know professions where um, learning certain things by rote is absolutely important. But when it comes to pure science, mathematics, and various other creative enterprises, you you yes, you need a background to some extent. But this idea of having a strict background of a huge, vast amount of information that fills textbooks and you pass exams on this can just turn you off being creative and teach you how not to be creative, but rather teach you how to remember things off by heart. So if you struggle academically, it could be any one of those things. You're not good at doing exams, but you might still be a really creative thinker. You might struggle academically because the teacher, the professor, the lecturer, the tutor is just terrible. You might struggle academically because no one's actually encouraged you at any point. No one's told you, hey, rather than just paying attention during the lectures, why not look online at different um, lecturers doing, delivering exactly the same thing in a more interesting way? Maybe you don't know how to, maybe you don't know the, 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 the secrets to passing certain exams and so on and so forth. So it could be all of these things. So I don't think there's a simple answer there. But broadly speaking, shared responsibility. Um, it's sometimes hard to know who's more culpable. Is it you um, or is it the teacher? Or is it the system? Yeah, probably the system in many, many cases. John Ortiz asks me, any book recommendations? The irony of this question in that it's one of the first podcasts I'm producing without my video background of my bookshelf behind me. So let me turn around and have a look at what I've got here and I'm... Um, uh, see if any of these speak to you. Depends on what you're interested in. If you're interested in philosophy and you don't know much, a good introduction to Popper is literally called Popper by Brian McGee. It's a very short book. It only goes for about 100 pages and it just explains Popper's thinking. Uh, so it's not by Popper, it's about Popper's thinking. If you like science, broadly speaking, um, and you want a book that contains geology and biology and chemistry and physics all tied up in uh, excellent expositions on a controversial issue, then the, the book Rare Earth by Ward and Brownlee is a really interesting take on the solution to the Fermi paradox. And it's one I talk about often, or the, the ideas in it I talk about often, because I don't think they're heard very often. They're not well understood. But astrobiology, you know, I'm trying to understand what the conditions for 
biology are that are needed out there in the universe if we're going to find ET, if we find the aliens, if we're going to find life elsewhere in the universe. That brings together all these different areas of science. So if you find a book about astrobiology, Rare Earth is one such book, popular science book, it can teach you a lot about all those areas of science simultaneously sort of knitted together under this one heading of alien life. You know, we don't know about aliens yet, but we can constrain what the aliens might be made out of. You know, they're not going to be pure beings of hydrogen for a whole bunch of reasons that come down to chemistry and physical forces. For history of philosophy, I love Wittgenstein's Poker. And it's a book I've talked about before. It's by David Edmonds and John Eidenau. And if you're just interested in two of the giants of philosophy of the 20th century, um, kind of iconoclastic, um, philosophical, to some extent, enemies of one another. <laughs> they had diametrically opposed views on so much, um, except they both like to speak clearly and to try and, um, uh, well, Popper more so than Wittgenstein, but they they they, they didn't they didn't have much truck with nonsense anyway. And so uh, Wittgenstein's poker is about the tension between them and the one encounter they had in real life that came down to Wittgenstein. Depending upon who you um, listen to in the book, either attacking. <laughs> popper with a poker not quite or simply gesticulating with a poker to make a point um so wittgenstein's poker is uh yeah first-hand accounts by a number of people about what happened and also the philosophy of wittgenstein and popper oh and i've got um in terms of fiction i've got 1984 up there i think everyone should read 1984 by george orwell um speaks <laughs> my favorite part of that especially right now um the, the, the massaging of words to take on their opposite meaning and to have people forget about what they used to think. It's just a, a great warning for the way in which societies can quickly fall into authoritarianism. But, um, you know, on my Kindle uh, and various other uh, formats, I have lots of history books, as often what I just read for entertainment purposes anyway. I have um, A Brief History of Bolivia, <laughs> um, Concise Histories of Korea. I like re reading about those uh, two countries in particular because they've been through so many rapid changes and I like looking into what happens when countries undergo rapid change. You know, rapid change from basically the ground up where, you know, effectively revolutions go on. What can go wrong and how badly it can go wrong in different places. And in terms of scientific interest, um, uh, I'm interested in this idea of fine-tuning. So I read everything that almost comes out on fine-tuning. Behind me I've got um, The Goldilocks Enigma by Paul Davies and on my Kindle I have A Fortunate Universe by Lewis and Barnes, which is a, a a great overview of the state of research in this fine-tuning question and what we understand the problem to be, whether it's actually a problem or not, and what possible solutions people have talked about so far. Next question from Glenn Hall. Question that makes sense to me, but you may not agree. Is common sense and logic compatible with quantum mechanics? To me, especially the multiverse defies common sense. Okay, so this is the last question. Um, yeah, absolutely, it defies common sense. But so does almost everything in science. I think common sense evolves over time. If you asked a person 100 years ago what was common sense, it wouldn't be the same as what is common sense today. You know, two centuries ago, it's common sense to just beat your children if they do the wrong thing. Today, the opposite is true. It's common sense not to do that. So common sense itself evolves over time. Uh, how far you have to go back when it was common sense that this sun went around the earth rather than the other way around, I don't know. But now it's common sense that the earth goes around the sun. It just means the thing that people know. So yeah, the multiverse 
defies common sense, but that has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not it's true. And it is true. Does it defy logic? No, it doesn't. It, it is it compatible with logic? Um, yes, it is. It has to be compatible with logic. Things have to be compatible with logic or else they're illogical. And if, if something is illogical, then you can throw it in the bin. Now, it is true that early on when people were trying to understand quantum theory and they couldn't, that some people, some physicists just went the whole hog and various others, I think philosophers as well, just went, well what we're seeing or what we think we're seeing, we think we're observing in quantum theory and some of these experiments defies logic. Therefore, logic has to go in the bin because science takes primacy. It's like you have this choice before you. Either you're going to accept the physics or you're going to accept logic. Some went, we're just going to accept the physics and we're going to throw logic in the bin. In particular, there were these ideas that, for example, a particle could occupy multiple places at the same time could be in different places at the same time. So it could both be here at point X and not at point X at the same time. Or it could be located at a particular point in space and simultaneously spread out throughout space. Okay, these, these are illogical. So this violates the law of logic, probably the most fundamental law of logic, I would think, called the law of the excluded middle, which is something can't both be and not be simultaneously. Either I am here recording a podcast right now or I'm not doing that. It's one or the other. I can't be doing both. I can't both be recording the podcast and not recording the podcast. If you're listening to it now, it must have been the case that I recorded the podcast. It can't have been the case that I never recorded the podcast. That's logic, logic, simple logic. Quantum theory has to be compatible with logic. And so the problem then became, how do we make it compatible? Well, you have to just take it seriously. If, it, if the, the theory says that a particle can occupy multiple positions at the same time, then it really does occupy multiple positions at the same time, even if you don't observe them. That just means that there's something wrong with your ability to observe all the positions simultaneously, hence the multiverse. So it obeys logic. In fact, it's the only logical way to understand quantum mechanics. It's the only way. So all you need to do for this is to go to my multiverse series or to go to the fabric of reality, shadows, understand the experiments that are done the uncontroversial content of those experiments, that whoever it is who, who performs the experiments, whatever the physicist is, they all, they all accept how the experiment is done and what the result of the experiment is. That's not a problem. So that's the uncontroversial part. The controversial part then comes in is to explain what's going on. Many of the physicists say, well, there is no explanation. Just accept the fact that this is what the experiment does without ever worrying about why. Which is kind of like saying the Earth goes around the sun in an elliptical orbit, but you're not allowed to say why. You're not allowed to invoke something like gravity, because you can't see gravity. You're not allowed to invoke Newton's inverse square law. You're not allowed to invoke uh, curved space-time. You can't do any of those things. All you can say is that today the Earth occupies this position on the elliptical orbit, and tomorrow it will be there, and then the day after that will be there, without ever saying why. That's not science. Science tells you why. In, in, in the case of Newton's theory, well, there's this thing called the inverse square law, and if you have this central body called the sun, then there is this force between the sun and the Earth, and, the, and that as the Earth moves around the sun, the force exerted causes it to go this fast, and the orbit is this, is this big, has this radius, and so on and so forth. So you have an explanation. You have an account of why. Quantum theory is the same thing. You have these things, these interference experiments where the particles if they were obeying if they're obeying what people think of as common sense what people think of as logic should follow a particular path but they don't follow that particular path so you've got some explaining to do which is always the case in science you always have this unusual observation which causes a problem you think well, what the heck's going on there and so what you have to do is to try and understand it. So you conjecture, you come up with creative theories. And lots of people tried to come up with creative theories. They would say things like, well, in these experiments where you're firing particles of light, these things called photons through the apparatus, it's simultaneously a particle isolated at a point 
and a wave spread out throughout space at the same time, which I would say defies logic, right? Other people would say things like, um, well, consciousness had something to do with it. When a human brain observes, when a person looks, when they make an observation, their consciousness somehow has an effect on the outcome of the experiment. It's very woo-woo. It's very spiritual, weird stuff, mystical, as if there was this force coming out of your brain affecting the trajectory on which the photons or the other subatomic particles are moving. I find that illogical as well. After all, what is this force that's coming out of your brain? How is it How is it working exactly? Never specified. The only thing that makes sense, the only thing that explains everything about what's going on is the multiverse. The multiverse just says, ah, actually, every time you fire this particle, it's accompanied by other ones that you can't see. You go, oh, but you're not allowed to postulate particles particles you can't see. But hold on, <laughs> you're always postulating particles you can't see to explain the things you see. It's that science is all about the seen in terms of the unseen. Why is it that you see light coming from the sun? Well, ultimately, it's because of particles you can't see. Namely, hydrogen nuclei deep in the core of the sun being fused together to form helium and that creates heat and that heat eventually um, leaks out through the surface of the sun as photons and we see the photons. So particles we can't see in the centre of the sun causing phenomena we do see. The same thing is kind of happening, well it's not the same but it's analogous to what's going on here. There's, there's particles we can't see giving rise to the phenomena that we do see, this interference phenomena. And so that's all we're saying, these particles we can't see aren't actually in our universe, okay, for a particular definition of a universe. It might even be better, like just David says it would be better if we had have just started calling scientific theories, scientific misconceptions to begin with. It would help with people understanding the process of science that we move from worse misconception to better misconception. Well, the same might be true here if we just never had the word multiverse maybe and we just had or parallel universes we just said oh well, the, the universe consists of the seen and the unseen these are the parts of the universe that are unseen you know the physical reality is bigger than what you think um uh, you can't you know the, the laws of quantum theory say you can't actually observe these particular other particles but they're there and they're the only explanation for what we do say so, i don't know but yeah people people struggle to accept um the multiverse because it defies today's common sense but you know decades from now it might very well be common sense once we have quantum computers for the reasons i said in my last ask me anything once we have quantum computers it'll be very hard for people to stick to this idea that the contents of physical reality aren't stupendously larger than what we think and the convenient way of describing that is we exist in a multiverse okay so that is the last question and i think this would have to be competing for one of the longest episodes of topcast ever and my voice is beginning to fail so until next time bye bye